Welcome to the Powering Independence Podcast. Insights and ideas for RIAs presented by Dynasty Financial Partners. A podcast dedicated to sharing some of the best practices, fresh thinking, and new perspectives in the independent wealth management industry. Your hosts for today's episode are Ed Friedman, Director at Dynasty Financial Partners, and Gordon Ross, Director at Dynasty Financial Partners. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dynasty Powering Independence Podcast. My name is Gordon Ross and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Ed Freeman. Ed, hello there. Good afternoon. I've been looking forward to today's recording for a long time because today's podcast is going to focus in on a topic that I believe is one of the most interesting areas in the wealth management industry today, and that's inorganic growth. Plenty of focus within the industry is on organic growth, uh, but the area of inorganic growth and M&A and advisor recruitment is actually an area where there's an awful lot of activity, but in our opinion, there's not a huge amount of information and guidance. Um, and and a number of really key org- and large organizations within this industry are growing uh, quite aggressively in that uh, uh, through that uh, sphere in the in the wealth management industry today. So what does the current state of the marketplace look like? What are firms looking for? What are advisors expecting? What makes a good deal? How can you avoid a bad deal? These are all the questions currently being asked within the industry, and hopefully today we're going to provide some of the answers. To help discuss these questions, we're joined by a stellar panel of industry experts. First up will be Mindy Diamond from Diamond Consultants, one of the leading recruiting firms operating in the wealth management industry today. We will then be joined by Phil Fury, CEO of Procyon Partners. Procyon is an RIA based in Shelton, Connecticut, that's been extremely active in the area of RIA recruiting and acquisitions. And lastly, we'll be joined by our friend and colleague, Justin Wenkel, Director of Strategic Analysis at Dynasty Financial Partners. Justin works very closely with Dynasty Network firms that are looking to grow in organically, and he sits at an interesting crossroads in the industry because he deals with both both buyers in terms of RIA firms and also sellers, the advisors and the advisor teams looking to join other firms. So it'll be great to hear from these three people um, throughout the course of today, and we very much look forward to it. So I'm going to start uh, with Mindy. Mindy, hello there. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. And if this topic is near and dear to your heart and you are excited, it's <laughs> I promise you it's nearer and dearer to mine, and I'm thrilled to be a part of this. Well, thank you so much. So why don't you start by giving us some background information about you and your firm? Sure, happy to. So I started Diamond Consultants 20 years ago. In fact, this past September, we celebrated our 20th anniversary, literally on my bedroom floor, began by recruiting primarily wirehouse advisors, talking to advisors at Merrill Lynch about moving to Morgan Stanley and Morgan Stanley advisors about moving to UBS and so on and so on. And the reason for those beginnings was because the RIA space was not something that was a mainstream consideration or anything that either the most entrepreneurial of the lot or someone that was really close to retirement that might have thought about it in those days. It's astounding to me, and we'll talk as we move through, about what's changed, but just the biggest thing is how mainstream going independent is. 
Mm. Over the last 20 years, we've really evolved the business. And today, probably 80% of the work that we do, and we are an executive search and consulting firm specializing exclusively in working with advisors, um, is all about moving advisors, breakaway advisors, advisors from the traditional captive space to some version of independence. And we're proud to partner with Dynasty on having done a lot of the deals that, uh, that they've successfully closed. Excellent. So I want to delve uh, initially deeper into that, uh, something that you just touched on there and the fact of the industry has changed so much. Like, I mean, you launched your firm in 1998, I believe. Um, Correct. You know, what does that, what, what, what does that change look like? If you think about the, the, the industry you were working in originally to what it looks like today, like how has it changed? Yeah, so the truth of the matter is, I think the biggest change is a change in advisor sentiment. And the change in advisor sentiment has been really driven by just how much the firms, the captive big brokerage or big banks that the advisors work for has changed. So what's changed in those firms is that the banks have become more heavy-handed, operating under the belief that advisors are making too much money and uh, a culture of really wanting to cut costs and trim and better margins and all of that. And a lot of that has caused a real disconnect, um, a lack of congruity, if you will, between what the advisor wants or sees as best practice and what the firms want. And as a result, the change in, excuse me, the change in advisor sentiment has been enormous. So 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, what advisors valued most, a quality advisor, was the biggest amount of cash they could get up front. And whether that was by staying put and getting a retention package or by way of just their own take-home economy or in a lot of cases, changing firms, the firms they were moving to were other traditional firms and it was all about getting the biggest deal up front. If we fast forward to today, the change in advisor sentiment, what motivates advisors is much less about the upfront cash. And it's not to say they don't care about it, but they're much more focused on building equity, building a legacy, gaining freedom and control, um, working in an environment that allows them to be more of a fiduciary and serve clients better. So the other thing is, is that at the same time during this period and a lot in the last year, the deals, the, the transition packages that the big firms were offering to incent advisor movement have sort of yo-yoed, if you will. You've got big firms like Morgan Stanley and UBS pulling out of advisor protocol, which makes moving a little more challenging from one big firm to another. You've got deals that were at a low point and then back at a high point. But the playing field's been leveled a lot as deals have come down in the wirehouse world. The, um, the delta between what an advisor can get in the first few years as an independent and what an advisor can get by changing firms has become much less. And that's a good thing. That's a lot of what's driven the move. Okay, great. So, you know, we often hear that there's a disconnect uh, between the advisors and the recruiting firms or potential, uh, potential acquirers. You know, there's a disconnect in, in valuations. The advisors are expecting one number and acquirers are, 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 expe are thinking a completely different number. What's driving that? Well, I think that... Um, 
an advisor always believes. I mean, I, I think, forget, take it away from advisors for a second. I think generally speaking, a buyer always wants to get, be paid the most and the seller always wants to pay the least. And the, the disconnect is what drives the whole negotiation process. But as advisors are concerned, part of the disconnect comes from the fact that for years and years and years, it was the Wild West in terms of deals or transition packages that were being offered were only going in one direction and that was up. So while it's not that, you know, whatever you want, we're going to give it to you, but there was no limit. We were seeing deals that were as high as 4X, four times an advisor's trailing 12 months production to move from one firm to another. And as I said, that's come way down. But part of that sort of fueled this belief on the part of an advisor that they could get anything they wanted, that they it was very much a buyer's market, if you will. And today it probably still is because the competition for top advisors is stiffer, but there is an absolute limit to the to the amount of cash up front that goes into a deal. Mm. Mindy, you sit in an interesting kind of uh, position in the fact that you are often kind of the middle person in the in kind of these discussions. What type of advice are you giving to the acquiring firms? Whether it, uh, you know the firms are looking to to recruit and and acquire advisors or advisor teams, um, what what advice are you giving them, and what mistakes do you sometimes see those firms make? Yeah, great question. Well, okay, so the the best advice or probably the number one um, uh, bit of advice is the fact that flexibility wins the day. That's the advice for the seller. That's the advice for the buyer. The more motivated somebody is to do a deal, the more flexible they are willing to be. So speaking um, specifically to the buyer, first of all, it's always about asking the right questions to get a very good understanding of what's most important to the buyer. And what I mean by that, or to the seller rather. And what I mean by that is one, the right questions to first and foremost determine that this is the right seller. I want this team or I want this advisor in my business. And by those answers, it's going to help to determine just how much I want them and how outside the box or how much I'm willing to stretch in order to get them, both financially as well as just in terms of how I structure everything about bringing them on. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, the questions you're asking are to help to determine if there are levers or dials in a deal. And those dials go from cash up front to equity in the in the um, buyer's business, to take-home economy, to growth backends, to whatever it is. You ask the right questions to determine which of those dials are most important to the seller. And once you determine that, then I think it's much easier to craft the deal that makes the most sense, that would be appealing to the seller, a deal that's most likely to get it done, and parameters within which you can live as the buyer. And can you just talk for a minute just about, you know, we've talked an awful lot about kind of market conditions in terms of uh, the buyers buyers and sellers, but what about activity? What are you seeing right now is, uh, is, you know, we're recording this podcast in late December, you know, is how has 2018 gone? Has it been a busy year? How does that compare to 2017? 
Yeah, so it's been an incredibly busy year. We had a wonderful year, and I don't say that to to brag about my firm, but I do think that our activity is sort of a good model or a good template for what's going on in the rest of the industry. So a couple of things. It is particularly active at the upper end of the market. It is the billion-dollar or billion-dollar-plus advisors that are the most frustrated and the most active in voting with their feet. I read a statistic recently that there were $25 billion-plus moves out of the wirehouse world. But where those billion-dollar-plus teams is what's most interesting. Ten of them went fully independent. Nine of them went to a combination of J.P. Morgan Securities and First Republic because they are the highest bid these days, the highest deal. Many of them went to regional firms, and only three moved one wirehouse to another. That is an extraordinary statistic because it's entirely different than what we would have seen before. In terms of predictions for 2019, we expect that movement, especially amongst the top of the food chain folks, to grow even more. One, because the big firms are doing more to take more control away from the advisors. And two, because independence in particular has become so valid. And as the waterfall of possibilities weighs for an advisor, go to independent, go independent and the ecosystem having grown so legitimately and robustly with firms like Dynasty who can support the most sophisticated of breakaways, we expect to see a whole lot more of it. So let's think about for a moment the uh, let's put ourselves in the in the shoes of an adv- of an advisor and maybe you're thinking about um, leaving you're thinking about joining another firm. What advice do you give th- to those advisors? Like what it do is it, and perhaps they're thinking maybe like two three years down the road they want to do this. What should an advisor maybe be doing well in advance uh, before a move? So what advice do you generally give the advisors? <laughs> Yeah. So first of all, I think that knowledge is power. So whether or not an advisor is terribly frustrated, unhappy, or certain that he wants to make a move, I think that the waterfall of possibilities and the landscape of the industry has changed so much in the last probably five years, let's say, that advisors that haven't explored or gotten their, or gotten educated about what their options are and what life beyond their firms looks like in the last number of years might be wise to at least ask the questions. And again, not because I think everybody should move far from it, but I do think think that as life within the big firms is changing, it's more important than ever to get educated about what it means elsewhere. And the reason I say that is because with all the talk about what it means to be a fiduciary, at the end of the day, what it means to be a fiduciary is to know for certain that every action you take is in the best interest of your clients. And that starts with where you work. So if there's any uncertainty whether today your firm is the best place or five years down the road it will be the best place. It's it's my opinion, and I think not just because I'm a recruiter, but I happen to really believe that 
every advisor needs to, you only know part of the equation if you only know your own firm. So that's one thing is to get educated. The second thing is, is that if you believe you have a move in you, you want to move, you think you want to move, in my opinion, it always serves you to do it sooner rather than later. And not again, not because anybody's looking to, to make a deal or to suggest that everybody moves, but time is not an advisor's friend, one, because the longer you stay with your firm, the more tied up you get and the more control you likely cede to your firm. Secondly, if you begin to discover that there are better ways to serve a client, then it is hard to have your feet in two lands. It's, it's almost impossible to unsee what you've seen. So once you've seen or you begin to believe that there's a better way of serving clients or running your business or growing your business, it's not, it doesn't serve anyone to prolong the inevitable. And at the very least, it all comes back to sort of getting educated. And I, I think that's really the key. Wonderful. Thank you, Mindy. That's excellent. I want to bring Phil Fiore into the discussion now. And, and Phil, uh, as you know, you're, you're the CEO of Procyon Partners. Um, please start by just kind of giving some background information about yourself and the company. Uh, great. Uh, Gordon, thank you very much for having us. This is awesome. And uh, um, M&A, as you know, is a key tenant of ours, uh, so uh, glad to be here. Um, I'm one of five uh, co-founders of Procyon, and myself and my fellow partners have been together for over a decade, and I've been doing this for almost 25 years myself. Uh, as you said, we're currently headquartered out of Shelton, Connecticut, uh, but we're very close to open up two additional locations, uh, hopefully one here in New York City very, very soon, which is exciting for us. Procyon has two distinct businesses. We have a private wealth business that has approximately 500 million and change in it today. And we have our institutional retirement consulting practice, which has just under $3 billion today that we consult on. And we have 15 people that make up the Procyon family as I sit here today. Excellent, excellent. So, you, you know, growing in organically and M&A is, is a key part of your growth strategy. You know, it, that's becoming, as, as Mindy mentioned, that's becoming an increasingly competitive marketplace. There's plenty of new firms entering into that marketplace looking for, uh, looking to recruit advisors and, and do deals. What are you guys approaching on doing to differentiate yourself against those competitors? Yeah, Gordon, that's a really good question. And I think that at Procyon, we do M&A very, very different than most. A lot of RIAs that are involved in the M&A game are looking to grab top-line revenue and AUM and are happy to earn a small scrape on that business. We don't think about M&A that way at all. We think about our M&A strategy as a way to make our company better and offer more resources and services to our clients. So when an FA or a team of FAs join our firm, they're not in an island. And we're not just saying, hey, good luck, let's know how the technology is. But rather, we're wrapping the Procyon brand around them, and we're driving those FAs and their businesses to new heights. Um, we are actively involved with those FAs, asking and answering the questions as to how do they get to the next level? What's the marketing plan for their businesses? And what should they be doing more or less of, given, given our infrastructure? Our expectation, ultimately, is that these FAs that we bring in are going to be partners of the firm. So for us, we want to start that process right from the get-go um, and, and, and build a relationship based upon our future partnership, not just some small economic benefit. Fantastic. So 
we've talked an awful lot. I mean, Mindy was just talking about how much activity there's been in the market. And we're hearing, and I think it's more and more, we're hearing more and more people use the word frothy in the market and that some valuations, some deal multiples appear frothy. What are you guys seeing and thinking at Procyon? Do you guys feel it's frothy right now? And it, and if you do, how do you still grow inorganically in, 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 in that type of environment? Are you... Uh, do you, you know? Are you happy to pay those prices? Or are you looking for? Or are you are you trying to do something different? Uh, so we're not happy paying those prices, yes. and, uh, and nor will we. Uh, we are very disciplined as to how we approach the buying of a business, or quite frankly, bringing FAs in. Um, our contention is that FAs that join us, it's as good for them as it is for our firm in totality, and so. If we're going to do this together, let's do it right. And let's start a relationship on the, on the right foot um, right from the get-go. Mm. And so if someone wants a lofty valuation from the start, we're going to politely walk away from that uh, transaction because that's not, that's not how you build a true partnership. Mm. A true partnership has to be based upon a win-win philosophy and attitude. And so if someone's looking to exploit a transaction uh, with, our, with, our, with our bank, with, with our checkbook, if you will, that's not a great way to start that off. And so we will politely walk away from that transaction. Mm. What we're looking for are those FAs that are looking for a better answer, a better place to be, and not necessarily we're looking for the maximum price. We believe that if you, th- if you put the price aside and you look at really building that business in a very substantive way, they'll get that money at the end of the day anyway. So let's dive a little bit more deeper into that because that's that's entering into kind of the world of due diligence and like what you look for for a candidate. You know, outside of like cost and and price and things like that, what else is in your criteria for what you're looking for? Well, we have a big rule and and I'm going to apologize to to your (laughs) audience with respect to the French I'm going to use, but uh, we do have a no asshole rule. And and, and we mean that in in a lot of different ways, but um, it's really important that... A person that comes to our firm or a team that comes to our firm fits into our firm. And and they embrace the team attitude and the team culture. And they have to believe that one plus one equals four. Right? If they are if if they're a believer that it's all about them and it's all about how how they can continue to do what they want to do at the cost of everyone else, that's not a person or a team that we're gonna to want to embrace and take on to our our uh, uh, our team and our infrastructure, Gordon, right? Mm. Um, so for us, we want people that not only can fit into our culture, not only believe in the team aspect of it, but want to actually help build the firm. They want an active voice. They want to they bring ideas to bear uh, upon the other partners of the firm and figure out a way to make Procyon better. Mm. We want people engaged. We want them active. We want, to, we want that healthy debate. Mm. We don't want people just sitting there saying, what about me, mm. right? It has to be about the, it has to be about the enterprise. Mm. And if everyone's focused on the enterprise, and again, we go back to that main rule that we talked about in the beginning, I think we got a winner with respect to bringing a recruit in. So how does that, how do you translate that into actual kind of blocking and tackling on a daily basis? Like when you're in the middle of a due diligence process or a negotiating process with a potential candidate, what do you do to kind of make sure that they, like what, do, what does your kind of selection process look like to make sure that they do fit, have that culture fit? Yeah, we spend a lot of time, Gordon, with candidates up front. Um, it's really important that all the partners meet with the candidate 
But we also have to meet with our staff and especially the key people that they're going to work with. Uh, we pay very, very, very close attention to the feedback that we get from our staff. Their feedback isn't misguided by the by the potential economics of a transaction, right? The partners might be a little bit more focused on the P&L, right? And it could be a good thing, what, what have you, relative to the business. Mm-hmm. Our staff is more interested in, can I work with this person? And so their feedback is really, really instrumental. And we've had a team since 1997 in some form or another. Mm-hmm. Yep. I will tell you that you get a gut feeling when you're sitting across from someone as to whether or not you can work with that person. And it's not very often that we go against our gut and have that decision have worked out. Mm. Right. So, so again, there's a lot of things that we, that we, that we talk about and, and utilize our, our full team for, but more often than not, our gut's going to reinforce exactly what we should be thinking relative to any candidate. And that seems to have worked pretty well over the last 25 years for us. Yeah, and this brings up an interesting topic that I think is an issue for many firms in this industry. And the fact that you you have, uh, you, there's five founding partners at Procyon. Uh, how do you guys come together to make decisions? And it doesn't necessarily have to be about M&A. Like, what is your, how do you guys come to an agreement? Well, today with five partners, we believe that, uh, a unanimous decision is probably the best. And that might not necessarily be in, in it might be in conflict with what I want. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if all of us come to a consensus, it's probably the right decision for the business, probably the right decision for our clients, so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. And so with respect to, with disrespect to uh, uh, M&A, I had that effort, obviously, for the firm. And so uh, in that regard, I'm the first one to meet a candidate. Mm-hmm. And um, I'll sit with that candidate and I'll see whether or not there's an immediate fit. Again, more of a gut play, but, you know, also looking at their business. Um, if I decide that this candidate is a good fit, and by the way, I can't tell you how many people don't make it to this next round, mm. right? There's a lot of people that we're talking to that, that we will respectfully walk just shake hands and walk away. They're not a good fit for us. But assuming that they are a good fit, they will they will go and come in and meet with the partners. And, you know, we kind of call that our, our partners acceptance committee, which today is comprised of all five founding partners. Um, and so they'll sit, they'll, the candidate will come in and meet with all of us, and the partners will have a gauge as to whether or not this candidate is a fit or not. Mm-hmm. Assuming it's a fit, then we'll have, I'll have a one-on-one economic discussion with that candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, assuming that that goes well, we'll then bring in the associates. And the hope would be that if we get to the associate level, we would have done enough work to think that that should go pretty well. Um, and more often than not, it does. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and it's a, another confirmation as to whether or not this person or this team is a true fit to our mm-hmm. to our enterprise. Um, once that happens, we'll do another thumb up or thumb down vote with the partners and and make it happen. That's essentially how it works. So it's a little laborious, quite frankly, up front with multiple. But it needs to be. It needs to be because our attitude about this, Gordon, is that we bring a person into the firm, they're going to be a partner. And so once they're a partner, it's very, very difficult to extract someone yeah. out, right? And so we're going to spend a lot of time up front to make sure that we can sit across from the table and make big boy, big girl decisions together, mm. right? And not make it personal, but make it about the business. Okay. So let's look forward then. What are you doing right now to kind of ensure that your kind of M&A strategy, your recruiting strategy is successful? I really think that you need to build a firm that supports M&A. 
it's one thing to say that you want to do M&A, but it's another thing to actually do it, support it, and do it well. So we've been at this for 18 months now as an independent mm. firm under Procyon. And in that time period, we brought in five different FAs. Um, and we learned a lot over those five transactions. And quite frankly, we continue to learn a lot um, uh, that, that make our M&A uh, initiatives and, quite frankly, our firm better to support the M&A. Um, but for us, in looking back at our M&A transactions, it's important for us to look back and see whether or not an FA's business has grown, right? Mm. Is that business better off with us than it was prior to joining us? Is the firm as a whole better off by that person joining us, right? And if you look back in that through those lenses, I think that for us, it's, it's somewhat of a qualitative aspect. Well, some of it's certainly quantifiable, right? The business grown. But, but ultimately, is the business better off by being a part of us? Mm-hmm. That's how we're determining how, how successful we are. We don't have, Prochan doesn't have a, a number where we're saying we want to bring in 10 FAs in 2019. It's more about the quality of the FAs and what we're doing with that business once they join our firm. And do you think... Do you think that's something you've learned? I mean, I guess the question I'm getting at is what do you wish somebody had told you 18 months ago? Well, uh, I'm generally not a very patient man. I don't know what you uh, mean. <laughs> and uh, uh, patience has been something I had to actually uh, learn uh, uh, quite significantly in this business. This is a very long process. Yeah. I thought our institutional business was a long, drawn-out process. Uh, and in some of these large companies making those decisions to hire us, uh, recruits are... are are much, much worse in that, res- in that respect. Um, but I will tell you that it's, it's very important that you know who you are as an M&A firm that wants to, in other words, what you're offering the candidates. Mm-hmm. And I also think it's very important that you stick by your deliberate process. Mm. I will tell you of the five FAs that we brought in, there was one FA in particular that we did not stick by our process. Uh, we did it a little quicker than we normally would, mm-hmm. and uh, um, we broke ranks with that FA uh, over the last year, and it was good for both of us, by the way. Um, and so it kind of reaffirmed to us that it's really, really important that we stick to our process because at the end of the day, that process is, is bearing true uh, as to what we need in order for us to get to the next step with that with that candidate. So uh, patience certainly is a virtue, Gordon, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> that's excellent. I'm going to remind you of that. Yeah, Maybe yeah, we're a mate. T-shirt for that for our next meeting. I appreciate <laughs> that. <Thank you. laughs> I want to bring in Justin Wenko into the conversation now. Justin, do you, do you want to start by giving uh, an explanation of like your role at Dynasty? Thanks, Gordon. Uh, yeah, I definitely appreciate you uh, having me on today. And thanks to Phil and Mindy for, for their uh, great insights today. Um, so at Dynasty, I lead our M&A uh, efforts with my partner, Joe Rizzo, and we drive M&A activity across the Dynasty network, which is uh, a lot of like-minded firms and, and industry-leading RAAs like Phil's business, uh, Procyon Partners. So we support 50 RAAs, or, or just about that many, that are very much focused on inorganic growth and, and the opportunity to expand their business through bolt-on acquisitions. Um, we work with each of these clients to build out a strategy and execute against that strategy that ensures it's accretive to their business, that it, it's a deal that they can bring to the table that's competitive in the market, um, and that we create a deal that's as efficient and repeatable as possible, for, for especially for firms like Phil's who are looking to do this multiple times uh, each calendar year. 
Um, and at the same time, we've seen the quantity and the sophistication of RAA acquirers continue to increase over the course of the last several years as more and more institutional capital floods into the market and into our space. Uh, so Dynasty empowers firms who don't have the scale necessary to support uh, you know, a full-fledged in-house deal team, uh, and we enable those firms to execute M&A at a very high level. You know, Gordon, let me just add something. Just being on the other side of this and, and being able to use Justin's and Joe's team mm-hmm. with respect to M&A, as someone who's in, in the trenches, wanting to do deals, you tend to get very close to deals. And quite frankly, deals get emotional, right? You, wanna, you want to close it. And by having Justin and Joe and that team, mm. they're able to separate that emotion out and 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 really make sure that the the transactions we, we are doing, we're doing it because it's the right business transaction, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, we, emotionally, there's a lot there. There's no question, right? But they make sure in working with them, and I, I really appreciate this partnership that we have, they're making sure that the business transactions that we're doing are indeed the right business transactions. So, Justin, thumbs up to you and Joe. You guys have been a, an awesome partner of ours, so thank you very much. We appreciate that. And obviously, we you know we really uh, love the partnership and are excited about the things happening at Procyon. And there's a lot to come in the near future, as Phil mentioned, but uh, you know, n- needless to say, he keeps us busy. Um, but but I, I would add to that, you know, I think that as we as we think about going after uh, acquisitions, you know, we're competing against a wirehouse platform that may do 20 or 30 or more deals a year. And, you know, they're set up to have three or four of those go horribly wrong. Uh, and it doesn't really affect their overall in the law of, you know, averages. For Phil and his team, we've got to get every deal right. You know, getting one deal wrong can really be detrimental to a firm in its early stages. And so we want to make sure that we're very thorough and build a process that allows us to weed out deals that would effectively cause risk for, for the Procyon partners that they may not have otherwise expected. Okay. Okay. But I'll, I'll just add to that that you know we also back up our M and A consulting work with Dynasty's operational backbone, so we can help teams support the growth once they bring the teams on board or the prospects. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, it's flexible financing solutions that we provide that enable our clients to execute leveraged buyouts without giving up direct ownership uh, to a third party. Okay. So my next question is a little bit delicate because Phil's in the room. So when you're, you know, the Dynasty, we're in a fortunate position whereby many uh, potential uh, candidates come to us and they don't necessarily want to launch their own business. They, they want to be introduced to a Dynasty Network firm. We're very fortunate in the fact that we kind of sit at that kind of central hub uh, within the industry. How do you guys decide, uh, you know, which Dynasty Network firms do we introduce a candidate to? Now, obviously, Phil's going to say every single one should be shown <laughs> to him, but which, you know, that's not always going to be the case. There's going to be some that aren't a right fit. So how do you go about that decision-making process? Sure, that's a, that's a great question, Gordon. I, I think the first thing is that we're working on targeted strategies with Phil and his team, and Phil's sourcing his own leads such that when that happens, you know, we obviously are respectful and keep those very much exclusive to, to the firm that's involved uh, up front. But, you know, if a lead calls into Dynasty, and that, that happens really on a, on a monthly basis, tens of tens of you know, calls uh, every week. We're really fielding in terms of advisors who are coming in and saying, I heard about Dynasty. I'm interested in learning more about your partners and, and how I can be a part of it. Um, but at the same time, if they come in through one of our great recruiting partners like Mindy and, and Diamond Associates and that team, um, we really sit in an agnostic position. So we're going to help that lead be introduced to, and I really think this is what 
uh, defines the the value add of our model from supporting the the sellers out there is that you know they get access to 50 potential RAA partnerships across the country. Um, so no matter the geography, the client demographics, whatever the you know the components of that business that are important to consider, today there's a firm in the Dynasty Network who will be a great fit for that advisor. Um, that being said, we do work with each of our firms to define a target profile. Um, so we sat down with Phil and team, and we do this with all of our clients who are focused on this to determine what are the characteristics, the statistics that differentiate the candidates that they're looking for uh, from the broader financial advisor space. Um, and then each firm also establishes a deal structure that includes a model for payout on revenue sourced and managed by each advisor and some combination of upfront cash and equity. Um, and then within those bounds, uh, we want to make sure that our clients don't waste time looking at opportunities that don't match those criteria. So if a lead comes across our desk within the bounds that any of our clients have set, you know, once we go under NDA, our clients are going to get a look. And, and again, agnostically, we want to make sure that they get the opportunity to see multiple firms in our network to make sure that they're making the right decision. Uh, beyond that, we spend a significant amount of time meeting with prospects, just like Phil does, in order to identify the potential cultural alignment. Um, and I, I do think, uh, you know, cultural alignment or misalignment, it's really the number one thing that drives success uh, in the deals that we see, because these are long-term partnerships. And as an acquirer, you need to see yourself sitting across the table from from this person making critical decisions, uh, potentially for the next five to ten years. Correct. Yeah, Gordon, I just want to underscore what Justin just said, because I really think it's important that the work that we do up front with the M&A team in figuring out what a candidate looks like for us mm -hmm. is immensely important. You're right. I want deal flow. There's no question, yeah. right? But I'll personally tell you that I don't want every deal that comes through the dynasty doors. Mm -hmm. We have a very particular criteria that we're looking at. We are an advisory-based firm, both on the retirement side and on the private wealth side, and we're planning-based. Some of the candidates that come in don't fit those molds, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I I think it's important if you want really want to do M&A and you want to do transactions, it's imperative to Justin's point that you take some time and figure out what that looks like at your firm and what you want to be relative to the firms that are coming in or the FAs coming in. Well, this this brings up another point, which I think is is interesting in the industry, is that you hear an awful lot about, is your firm M&A ready? And so, and this is just a general, this might be for Justin, it might be for Phil, you know, what does it mean to be M&A ready? Sure. Well, I mean, at Dynasty, we go through a pretty extensive process with our teams to make sure that when a deal comes across their desk, you know, they're ready to execute. And I think uh, for Phil, that process was an extensive one to make sure that he and all of his partners were comfortable with all the components that, that go into making uh, an M&A strategy successful. So we start with thinking about what we've talked about, which is the culture and what's the vision of, of Procyon long term and making sure that that sets the stage for the whole conversation. Um, we look at the client profile and the service model. We understand the legal structure. We need to make sure the right documentation from an operating agreement perspective is in place. And that we've also got the documentation to execute a deal to the extent that one comes up that we've thought through the, the right components of those legal documents. Uh, the operating structure, you know, trading and billing and, and uh, all the technology inside the firm. Are we ready to bring on a, an advisor? And what does that really mean in terms of the workflows to get them live on day one? Uh, and then finally, the financials and, and really looking at how the firm reports and looks at the P&L on a quarterly and monthly basis, and how are we going to be able to accommodate a new business inside of that, especially to make sure that whatever the terms are of the deal, whether it's cash up front, whether it's the payout model that we want to implement, 
are we ready to run that day one uh, out of the gate? So we spent a lot of time setting the stage and going and working with firms to design that and, and really building something that's unique to their, to their vision and their value prop. Uh, and then we'll, we'll work with teams on understanding valuation in the space, what's out there in terms of the market, how should they approach it. Uh, and we're very much, uh, you know, value based on cash flow and understanding that, uh, you know, we're building a profile based on a discounted cash flow model and, and understanding what valuation means in terms of the, you know, the return on investment for the, for the firm. And finally, deal structure. You know, what are the components, cash, stock? Is it an affiliation model with a scrape like Phil talked about earlier? Uh, and are we, you know, are we comfortable across the firm with with building some flexibility into certain areas so that we can go after a wider, you know, a wider net of opportunities, whether it's advisors selling their firm or potentially uh, younger advisors looking for a platform to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are really, I think, the components that go into into getting ready and making sure your firm is operationally, you know, ready to do M and A. Uh, and then we spend a lot of time building a strategy. And around that, it's it's at the very you know forefront thinking about the right collateral and right strategy to market to advisors, uh, because most of our firms spend most of their time thinking about how do we market to end clients, uh, and it's a very different message I think though it has a lot of the same tenets um, to to target advisors and show them why being a partner at Procyon is is such an exciting thing. So, and what does it mean for like a a, a candidate to be M and A ready as well? Like legally, as you, if you're thinking about moving, where the big like do's and don'ts. Well, I think you know, you know, Mindy is probably best in terms of understanding what's what's uh, at stake for candidates when they don't execute a move in the right way. But at Dynasty, you know, we've launched fifty firms. More than half of those were breakaway advisors who had to, you know, be very much strategic about the way that they transition their book. Um, so I think first and foremost, when it comes to kind of the legal questions, you want to review any, your employment agreement and any documents that you have executed, signed with your current employer. Uh, and also the employee handbooks that they have, because those you know those terms govern what you can do and, and what you can't do. Uh, and and beyond that, don't sign anything new if you can avoid it. Um, you should definitely get counsel through someone who's experienced that understands you know your specific employment and regulatory situation. Um, I would recommend that you keep the circle small, and these are just kind of pre pre uh, pre deal considerations. But don't don't tell anyone if they're not absolutely critical to the to the transaction and. And at the same time, make sure your spouses and significant others are in the loop, uh, because you know, again, you don't want to to risk anything and any documentation flowing around that that could could out the situation. Uh, and finally, don't take home any docu- documentation or electronic or other communications uh, until you really know what you what your rights are. Mm-hmm. And with that, you know, remember that access to any device that you use to uh, to access firm systems or or any technology is the firm's property. Uh, and so you need to be really careful about communication on that front. Okay. All right. And what about kind of a candidate making themselves, you know, from a deal point of view, attractive or unattractive or a candidate point of view, unattractive or, or attractive? Like, what can, a, what can a candidate be doing to make themselves, you know, uh, uh, attractive to the to the acquiring organizations? Well, within the bounds of what I just said, I think it's building a profile of their business. Understand mm. what they want. Uh, Mindy touched on this earlier, but you know what's important to them in a deal. Are they did, are they trying to sell their business? Do they want to you know monetize their life's work, or are they looking to join a partnership and build enterprise value in in something over a longer period of time? Um, and you know we spend a lot of time focused on both of those types of transactions, but there's very different solutions, um, very different deals that go behind that. So know what you want. Uh, and again, we spend a lot of time in a consultative way helping pull that information out of a candidate. 
Um, but at, at the other side is understand the, the, the structure of your business as, as detail, as much detail as you can. Uh, and that means thinking about, you know, your clients, the revenue profile, how you build clients, what, what the size of the relationships are, all the statistics that go behind your business. You would be surprised, especially when we work with wirehouse advisors, uh, you know, they don't have access to full information on their business. And there's a reason for it typically uh, within the bank uh, model. Um, and so building that profile and really having a good understanding of the components of that business so that we can build a, a real uh, and accurate valuation model behind it uh, is critical. So if you can start to put that information together, you're going to be better positioned uh, to go out there. Okay. So I, we've got a few, we've got about 10, 15 minutes left, and I want to open up the remaining questions really to the group and, and have a group discussion. And I want to pick up on one thing Mindy talked about in terms of how, you know, in the last 12 months, we've seen certain organizations leave the broker protocol. What, what are we seeing in the market in terms of an impact on that, uh, from that? And where do we see that going? Do we see more firms leaving the protocol? Do, uh, do we see it staying status quo? What are people's views on that? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in on that. So I think that when Morgan Stanley first and then UBS followed in pulling out of protocol, their expectation and hope was two things. One, that it would tank the protocol and every signator to it would would leave the protocol and hence there would be no more protocol. And two, that it would lock the doors and that it would absolutely stave off advisor um, attrition. But it didn't really have that effect on either side. So... Is it possible that Merrill will follow? Sure. Is it possible that other firms will leave the protocol? Sure. But the unintended consequence of Morgan and UBS pulling out was the PR mess that it created for them. The message it sent to the marketplace, which is essentially we don't support or believe in advisor choice. We're so worried about attrition that we have to lock the doors as opposed to having advisors who want to be here because they believe it's best for their clients. And so I think that in and of itself is what's driven advisor movement. What we've seen is that much like with a child, the more you tell a child they can't do something, the more they want to do it. I think that one of the consequences of these firms leaving protocol was actually serving as the impetus to drive people away from those firms. You're kidding me? You're going to take away my choice? Mm. I'll show you. And so... I expect two things. It's possible that other firms may pull out of protocol, but I do think that they've paid careful attention to some of the negative consequences of Morgan and UBS having paved the way. And I think regardless of whether or not other firms follow, advise, quality advisors will continue to, to make moves if it's right for them. Because as fiduciaries, they need to put their their clients, their businesses themselves before the firm, and they'll continue to make those decisions with or without protocol. Yeah, yeah, uh, Gordon, I will tell. I agree with everything Minnie just said, and I will also just tell you that there was a life before protocol, where there was still movement. Uh, our firm, in particular, left a wirehouse to go to Merrill uh, uh, when protocol wasn't wasn't around. Mm -hmm. It all becomes around and centers around client choice, right? Clients gonna dictate ultimately where they choose to do their business. Mm -hmm. And what strikes me about this whole protocol, uh, um, or at least getting out of protocol is, shouldn't the energy be spent on just making the firm better? Yeah. 
right? Doesn't that seem like a more realistic way to go about it versus versus telling your FAs that they're locked up? Just make it better. And so they want to stay, right? And, and, and compete in that regard, right? Versus, versus keeping these poor FAs, you know, tightly wound. So I think, to Mindy's point, I think it was a total uh, um, reversal of what they wanted. The, the unintended consequence actually happened, right? They didn't expect the, the, the uproaring that they got. And I suspect that now that that's been, what, a year and change, that more and more FAs are going are gonna to realize that there's life on the outside yeah. and it's still okay to leave irrespective of protocol or non-protocol. Yeah. So let's say, let's say you've done a deal for the advisors signed on board and it's day one. What can you do, what, what, whether this be the, the, the firm, whether this be the kind of, what, should, what does a good transition look like? Like what does uh, what can you do to ensure that the transition of an advisor and their clients over goes as seamlessly as possible? Well, for one, I think it's about knowing, being really self-aware and self-honest. So the bottom line is, if you're an advisor and you are not a hundred percent confident in the depth of relationship you've built with your clients, then no matter how exciting it may be to move or no matter how frustrated you are where you are, a move is going to fail if you don't have um, a strong relationship with clients. Secondly, I think that for an advisor that's moved multiple times in his career, the bar goes up in terms of how how much he really needs to paint a picture for his client of this move really being for their benefit. I think that the stakes are higher and clients are much more sort of a definitive, I'll follow because I trust you the first time. And I think that that sort of definitive, heck yes, I'll follow goes a little a little down each time with each subsequent move. Um, and I think the self-aware and self-honest piece extends to being really, really clear about what's driving the bus. We talk a lot at our firm about red herrings, that in almost every deal, advisors who are not really clear up front about what the most important motivations are for the move will get to a point where they'll sort of lose track of why they're moving and decide to stay or go or move or make a decision based upon something that wasn't really all that important in the first place. And so we take advisors through a process that a, a it's a list of 20 questions or so that are sort of a self-assessment that really help advisors get clear on what what is frustrating them. What do they want to be when they grow up? What's most important to them? What are the five-year goals, the 10-year goals? What's the end game? How important is transition money? Lots of questions like that. And I think the clearer you are on that up front, the absolute more successful the move will be and the more certain you can be that you've chosen the right option. And is there any common themes or correlation in the kind of the answers you're getting to those 20 questions? Is there a, a recurring theme with the people you're talking to? Well, yeah, because so <laughs> that goes back to what I mentioned early on about the biggest change being a change in advisor sentiment. So 10 years ago, let's use that as a benchmark, even five years ago, probably the biggest motivators for a move were um, – change in brand, like I've become frustrated. I don't love it here and here being Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, or any firm for that matter. And I want to make sure that I'm 
taking chips off the table, that I'm creating the best deal in the short run for myself. Today, the motivators are, again, it's not that economics don't matter because they always matter, but what drives the bus first and foremost is a desire for more freedom and control. And that's why you see advisors like Phil Fiore, quality advisor from a traditional wirehouse firm who 10 years ago, and I don't want to speak for Phil, who probably never would have thought about going independent just because it wasn't mainstream. It wasn't what a high quality top advisor did. Today, if control and freedom is most important, control and freedom in terms of how they service clients and in terms of how they grow is most important, that in good conscience, they can't move from one major firm to another. Going independent is likely the only right decision. Yeah, Gordon, just to add to that, Mindy, you're right. Ten years ago, I wouldn't have thought this way. You're 100% accurate about that. Um, I think that clients are very smart and well-educated relative to FA moves and transitions and what it all means for the FA and or the client, right? Um, 10 years ago, that was not the case. Now it's very, very transparent. And so as FAs are considering their next move, it's to Mindy's point, it's really, really important that they put the economics aside. And again, I'm not belittling the economics. They're very, very important. But there has to be a value prop that is associated directly to the client experience and the client services that you're offering. Mm. And if it's only about the money, I would tell you that I believe that that transition will not go well. Mm -hmm. Because, again, I think that clients are just very, very smart today. And they they deserve better, quite frankly. I, I couldn't agree more. And I'll add one thing to that, Phil. And it's the fact that. I think 10 years ago, the term fiduciary or fiduciary standard was something advisors only read about or heard about in trade publications. But today, the notion of the fiduciary standard, or more importantly, their advisor being a fiduciary, is something you read about in the mainstream publications. And it is clients, I think, that have really driven the bus, that have really driven advisors to be forced into putting their interests first. As advisors become aware of the fact that they could have an advisor who works for a traditional firm who is held only to a suitability standard or have an advisor where the safe asset custody and the product manufacturing and the advice are separated, to have an advisor that has access to the whole of market versus an advisor who's limited by the guard rules or the box that their major firm puts them in, as that becomes the notion of what it really means to become a fiduciary becomes more and more mainstream, clients, I think, will force this discussion even more. So that brings up an in, this is an interesting question. and It's maybe a controversial question, so don't worry. We can edit this out if you don't like your answer. But <laughs> game, like game theory this out, like if you're the, if you're the CEO of a, war, of a warehouse right now, what do you do? Like where does this go from here? If you're the CEO of a warehouse, how do you respond to this, you know, independence movement? How do you, what would you be doing if you're the CEO of Merrill Lynch or the CEO of Morgan Stanley or insert any other name in there? Yeah, well, I'm so happy to answer that. I'm, forgive me, I'm sorry. <laughs> the, truth of the, the truth of the matter is that if, if the question is what would we do, I think that that's probably a very different answer than what they will do or what the those that are serving as CEOs of those firms will do. So for one, you look at a firm like Wells Fargo, who says, we've had a lot of losses. If you can't beat them, join them. We're going to launch an RIA arm. But I think, generally speaking, 
the RIA space, which was initially really dismissed by senior leaders at the wirehouse firms as nothing more than a passing fad or something that only losers did, now is something they absolutely cannot ignore or dismiss. There's no way that a senior leader of a wirehouse in good conscience and with all honesty when with a straight face, could ignore the threat that independence is. But unfortunately, all they're focused on, or fortunately for those that serve the independent space, what they focus on is the quantity, not the quality. And the quantity of losses is still relatively small compared to the amount of assets that sit in those platforms. So they ignore Cerulli reports that says, you know, the vast majorities of assets are moving from the wirehouse world to independence and all of that. They sort of ignore the fact, at least when they're talking publicly and making public decisions about the fact that you're watching $5 billion teams or billion-dollar-plus teams regularly leave the firms. And so um, I don't think they're doing much about it. I think that instead of, to Phil's point, looking to make things better to keep the advisors happier, they're looking to do things to tie them up more, to make them more captive. And again, the unintended consequence of that is, particularly amongst the best advisors in the industry, it's the more they want to run for the hills. Yeah, I think, Gordon, adding to that, and it's an interesting question, and, and I think Mindy's perspective is spot on, but I spent 22 years uh, inside the wirehouse world, the last probably 10 or so on the management side, recruiting uh, advisors. And after I had left and gone to the independent space, I had a meeting with one of the CEOs of one of the leading firms, wealth management business. And we were having a discussion about this move to independence because I'd already been in the independent space probably for about four or five years at that point. And he said to me that he did not necessarily believe what he was reading in the press about this tsunami that was happening to independence. And I said to him, you know what? You're absolutely right. I said, the press always reports to an extreme and you have to find that middle ground. I said, but make no mistake about it. Every tsunami starts with a few ripples on the shore, and it is the firm that ignores those ripples. They do so at their own peril. And I think Mindy's point is well taken. Statistically, the numbers are right there in front of us and in front of them to see. We see this shift in assets. We see the shift in advisors. And probably eight years ago, Cerulli predicted or forecasted that in the 2016-2017 timeframe, we would see asset movements in a given year start to tilt to what they call the non-traditional, the independent space, and away from the big money center banks and the wirehouses and the like. And it happened. I mean, we saw the statistics from, from the prior year. So inside the independent world, we are really kind of hoping that they continue to keep their head in the sand because it allows some of the industry's best advisors and with them their clients to make this move to, as Mindy said, this fiduciary standard this fiduciary model that serves not only the advisor exceptionally well, but more importantly, the client. So, listen, this can be our closing question. I'd like to go around the horn here and ask you, uh, each person to answer. Where, what does this look like in 10 years then? The, the, the wealth management landscape in 10 years, uh, in terms of composition, in terms of the types of firms, the size of firms operating in, in, in that space, what do we think that looks like? Mindy, do you want to go first? Sure. Look, I think that there will always be big money center banks and plenty of advisors that will want to practice there and should practice there. 
hopefully in that period of time, the firms will figure out a better equilibrium. They won't continue to frustrate their advisors, but find a better way to serve them. But in the meantime, in the next 10 years, I think that we will continue to see consolidation within the RIA space as it's harder and harder for a standalone independent to survive both economically and from a value proposition perspective. Um, Secondly, I think that um, we will continue to see more and more breakaway momentum. So while there will always be a home for the the wirehouses, it's not that they're going out of business, but I do think we're going to continue to see much acceleration in the breakaway space. And I think that the independence in general, the ecosystems to support it will continue to grow. The institutional capital, as Justin referenced, that looking to flock to and support the space will continue to grow and become more available. And I think that the independent landscape will become more and more relevant over time. Okay. Phil? Yeah, I agree with what Mindy uh, just said, uh, Gordon, on on all fronts. I I would just echo that I believe there's going to be massive RIAs. It used to be that you had a billion dollars. You were a very large RIA. I think that number now is moving north of 10 billion. uh, And I think scales the game. I think that uh, to Mindy's point about where independence is going, I think that you need to be able to have scale in order to bring the resources to bear upon the client base uh, in a very unique way and very different than what the big money centers are doing. And so I do believe that there's going to be massive consolidation within the RAA industry, and I think that's very healthy. And I think there will be several very large players with tens of billions of dollars under management that are bringing unique services and resources to the clients, and I think that's going to be awesome for the clients. Mm -hmm. Justin? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'd second what what both Minnie and Phil said in in the sense that when we look at the number of transactions that get done every year, you know, I think it's a statistic like 80% or more than that are done by firms that are billion dollars and greater today. So the the big firms out there are only getting bigger. I think we're going to continue to see that trend. I think from the product and service side, uh, you know, you can't deny the fact that client interests are best served in the independent space and the technology continues to get better and better. Um, but, but I do see that the banks are going to continue to shift to open up their platforms to allow more products over the next, next 10 years to, to access the independent space because that's becoming a new, very important distribution opportunity for them. Um, so, so I think that REAs are going to get bigger and stronger around the country. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're most likely over that 10-year window going to go through a period where, uh, where valuations dip down. Um, but at the end of the day, for RAAs that are growing fast and have you know very very uh, strong sustainable cash flows and can establish themselves as differentiated in the market, you know we're going to see valuations continue to to sit in in a really premium uh, premium space and and again institutional capital fueling that. Okay, Ed, anything to add? Well, geez, our experts have kind of covered uh, everything I think and, and done it well. I think if you look out ten years, I, I kind of like Justin's point that uh, and kind of building off of many these money center banks will be there. But I think 10 years from now, a larger proportion of their business will be to service or sell to the independent space, whether it's their product, whether it's their banking uh, abilities. We're starting to see uh, some of that. We see asset managers in the industry that in the past, while they um, serviced, I guess, the RIA space, now they're actively going after and looking at ways to, to work with, uh, with RIAs. I do believe that valuations may start to come back into a normal range. I think we as an industry will become much better at M&A and at banking and at valuation. 
I think we will see this consolidation. There are 687 firms in this country right now that are over a billion dollars, and they control 60% of the assets in the independent space, but they only make up about just under 4% of all of the RIAs uh, out there. I think that consolidation is going to continue. I think Phil is spot on. A $10 billion firm five or 10 years from now might be middle of the road. So I think we're going to start to see that. I think that's also why this discussion around M&A and inorganic growth is not only so important to all the firms who may be listening, but to our industry in general. We have an aging population in the industry, approximately 53% are 55 years of age or older. Where is that going to go? Where are those assets going to go? Are we bringing in the next gen, which is an interesting separate topic? Um, but because of that, these bigger firms, I think, are going to start to dominate and we're going to start to see regional type of RIAs as opposed to kind of the mom and pops that we might have seen, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Excellent. Well, with that, I want to draw a close to today's podcast. Thank you so much to our guest once again. I thought that was wonderful. And we look forward to speaking to you another time soon. I want to thank our guests for the great comments and insight, and I want to thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. I hope you find it entertaining, informative, and helpful. If you have any comments, questions, or would like to connect with Dynasty or any of our guests, please feel free to contact us at podcasts at dynastyfp.com. That's podcasts at dynasty, F for Frank, P for Peter.com. We look forward to you joining us on our next podcast. Until then, remember, at Dynasty, we get to live our American dream by empowering others to live theirs.